Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray. I'm here with my amazing co-host, Ellen McGirt. (laughs) And Ellen, we have a great guest today, one of my favorite CEOs. She runs a $3 billion company called PagerDuty, Jennifer Tejada. Yes, we do. And I've known Jennifer, I know that you two as well, um, from our conferences, NextGen, MPW, COI, just for years now. And I always look forward to talking with her. She has been so smart and so intentional about equity and using her networks to build opportunity while growing her own business savvy and doing the same great things for other talented people. It was really like same time next um, conference yeah. kind of network. And I've just watched her store over the years. So it was so yeah. fun to catch up. She's all of that. And she's one of the few women uh, mm-hmm. who ran a unicorn, took it public in April 2019. So let's dive in. Jennifer, it is so good to see you. I haven't seen you since you IPO'd, which is a very cool thing to be able to say to somebody. <laughs> Congratulations, belatedly. Well, thank you. It's great to see you both and and be able to talk to you today. And let me just say that IPO made you one of the few female unicorn IPOers, right? Uh, You you went out at a couple billion dollars. It did. We went out at a few billion dollars and I was the first woman in over a decade to take a tech company public on the New York Stock Exchange. So it was fun to be standing on that podium with Stacey Cunningham, with a woman leading the New York Stock Exchange and, you know, many members of my team behind me. And more importantly, I mean, we had over 100 people on the trading floor as well that kind of got to celebrate the milestone that your IPO is, even though, you know, I always say it's a lot like a wedding. And mm-hmm. and then the day after the IPO, you got to go work on the marriage, which is that <laughs> <hard>. <laughs> Well, Alan and I have a ton of questions on all of that. But I thought it would be really good to start with the basics and what PagerDuty is and does. Sure. Well, PagerDuty is a digital operations management platform. And what that means is we use software, machine learning, and AI to detect unstructured, unplanned, but time-critical work that can impact the digital customer experience for any of the biggest brands that you would recognize or the most innovative companies in the tech world. So we serve 60, uh, over 60 now of the Fortune 100, and also the most innovative, fastest-growing tech companies that you can imagine. And what's changed for all of them is historically a part of their business was digital and that digital experience for their customers and employees was important for productivity, for brand loyalty, et cetera. But, you know, post pandemic, what we've seen is most of our customers, their entire business is digital now. Hmm. And when it doesn't work, it's very disruptive. And what's also happening from an underlying technology infrastructure perspective is the technology is getting more complicated. And it's impossible for humans to detect all of the potential issues that could take place that end up breaking that experience that you're expecting. And as a consumer, what you see is that spinning wheel of death or (laughs) the app crashing or, you know, just something that this morning I was trying to pay a bill and the form for the credit card transaction just wouldn't come up. Like that is a technology incident. And what happens? Like I give up. Right. And maybe I don't pay that bill. Maybe I don't use that provider anymore because it's too inconvenient to work with. 
And so these incidents are are increasing and yet human the pressure on human beings to get it right in the moment that matters so that you're not publicly uh, shamed for not working on the day a new premiere is happening or uh, not enabling someone to download something the day of a launch. Like these are all things that we see now every day as a part of living, learning and working online. So digital operations has become critical infrastructure in supporting tech teams and serving that perfect customer experience. So I think you're saying that the pandemic uh, was good for your business. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 yes and no. It was it was good for the business in that it really helped people understand uh, the criticality and the materiality of incident response and why it's so important. Because as as revenue shifted from bricks and mortar to digital, that, that just became clear not just for tech leaders but also business leaders. And so that's been helpful. Distributed work has also been helpful. We're designed, our platform was designed for distributed engineering teams. So it's by definition works very well if you're dealing with teams you can't see, don't know who they are, don't know where they are, and you've got to orchestrate work across these cross-functional teams in a virtual manner. So distributed work has also been a tailwind. Digital transformation has been a tailwind. Cloud migration has been a tailwind. I'd say that, you know, the downside, not necessarily to our business, but to society is that, you know, the misery gap between businesses that are doing well, stocks that are doing well, people that are doing well, and then people that are unemployed whose businesses have been decimated by this pandemic and the economic fallout associated with it. Like that worries me more as a leader than anything else. So let's talk a little bit about what the pandemic experience was like for your employees. What was it like and what were your some of your first concerns? Well, my first concern was safety. I mean, straight up. And we had just finished every year in, in February and March, we do a company kickoff. So my team had been spread out in Toronto, Atlanta, London, Sydney, uh, San Francisco. I think I arrived home from my last kickoff show on maybe March 7th. We made the decision to close the office on the 8th close mm-hmm. all of our offices globally. And, you know, I, I like I am a hugger. So I had hugged nearly a thousand people in the past 10 days and was sure I was going to be the COVID super spreader. And funnily enough, I've never even tested positive for antibodies. So uh, I think closing the office quickly and early did help keep our employees safe. We had less than, I think, a one and a half percent test positive rate in our employee base over the course of the year. But even though we were we are already a remote friendly company, more than 20 percent of our employees had been remote prior to the pandemic. All of our engineering teams are already distributed. Uh, it was hard. It was hard, I think, for people to adjust to the sort of lower empathy that you feel, the collaboration, the engagement. I mean, we're human beings. We are meant to be together. We're meant to engage in order to ideate and innovate. And I think the first quarter, the first three months or so, everybody was running on adrenaline. And we were all, you know, my peers and I talk all the time, we were all surprised by the increase in productivity, by how well people were handling, you know, that initial first few months. But then as the pandemic continued, you know, what you saw was people struggling in different ways. And so there was no one size fits all solution to help each of our employees, you know, be successful. Now what we're seeing is kind of a bifurcation. Like we, if you have too many people in your household and your kids are not back in school, 
you're really languishing. It's really frustrating. And even, you know, I'm talking to some employees who their kids are back in school sort of part-time, but they're having to do midday pickups and drop-offs to no two days are the same. You know, it's very disruptive. If you don't have enough people in your household, it's very isolating. So you have to kind of look at, at every constituency and try and figure out how to support them. Yeah. Well, Jennifer, let's talk about that because you have just put your finger on what is the number one issue that comes up with virtually every CEO we talk to these days. And yep. and you have more experience than they do because you've been running hybrid for some time. But, you know, you got 20, 30 percent of the workforce that wants to stay home forever. And you got 20 yep. percent or 30 percent of the workforce that wants to get out of their house and get back to the office as fast as possible. And then you got a big group in the middle that's talking about hybrid. But nobody knows what hybrid is. They don't know what they mean and how if part of the people are going to be in the office and part of the people are going to be out of the office and you don't really know when, how do you make that work? What does hybrid mean? It is complex. I think maybe even some organizations are underestimating the complexity that comes as a result of giving your employees the flexibility they want. You know, um, I heard Daniel Dine say this uh, when he was interviewed during the IPO, like people want the freedom of flexibility, but they want the joy of being together. And it's hard yes. to manage Perfect. both of those things as an organization when you've got teams distributed around the world now as well. One of the things I learned when I first joined PagerDuty, the engineering community hosts a, an annual internal conference for engineers called PagerCon. And I saw a presentation at PagerCon, I think four or five years ago, where they talked about how to make meetings more effective for uh, hybrid teams. Back then we called them distributed teams, but let's call them hybrid, where you've got a couple of people dialing in from different regional offices, a couple of people dialing in on their own from home, and then a group in a headquarters organization that's in a bigger room. How do you make all of that work? And back then we were doing things like putting tape on the tables in our conference rooms so you knew not to sit too far forward so that you would be in camera's view and you know would be present in the meeting, like simple things. Having an agenda, making sure that during every part of that agenda, you're giving every person an opportunity to have an input, that there is a facilitator in the meeting whose job it is to ask for input. So people aren't, don't, you don't have to rely on people to be able to interject because that's very hard, you know, on Zoom in large meetings. Now we're talking about if the meeting has more than three people in it, everybody gets their own square. Because there's, you know, it's it's a difficult environment when you've got a bunch of people live in a meeting, experiencing a lot of engagement in one room and then other people dialing in from one square. So we're thinking about our offices as more collaboration hubs and innovation centers, engagement centers. If you're going to do deep work on your own, you would do that at home. We will hotel our desks. We're using the same systems that we've used in the past to manage conference room use to manage desk use, et cetera, and trying to automate all of that. But a lot of this falls on managers. And I think this is something that everybody needs to think about. How do we coach and train and ready our managers and also learn from them as we're running this experiment to evolve the way remote work works? Because one of the things I've found is really important with my team remote is regular check-ins. And I'm not asking them, hey, where are you on the quarterly number? Hey, how are you doing against your budget? How's this project going? I'm saying, how are you? How's your family? You know, how are things? How are you feeling about things? What's next for you? Like having those conversations to check in on people's mental health 
is now just important as checking in on, you know, where they are from a business perspective, yeah. maybe even more. I, I can tell Ellen has a bunch of questions, but I just want to say you gave a great quote from Daniel Dines. Tell us the quote again. He said, people want the freedom that you get from flexibility, but they want the joy of being together and engaging and growing as a team. So I just want to point out for our listeners that Daniel Dines is the CEO of UiPath, an automation firm that you sit on the board of. That's right. Uh, and That's they right. also did an IPO recently. They just went public a few weeks ago. We were really proud of them. I mean, I've also been on the board of Estee Lauder for several years, right? And Estee Lauder has a huge business in China. And if they're, if, if you never thought that board work could be good for you as an executive, I mean, one of the greatest things about my experience with Estee recently was I had an early, an early view and a lot of visibility to what was happening with COVID in China, even though I don't have business in China in my own company. So in December and January, this was a conversation around the table at Estee Lauder, which helped me get ahead of and prepare for the situation at PagerDuty. And that's one of the great benefits of being in different boardrooms is you do see the world through a broader aperture. You see challenges through different lenses based on different business models, but they all help you by providing extra context as you're having to make really important leadership decisions on the fly. So we should talk about that because I'm really concerned, and I know that you must be too, the impact of the pandemic on working women has just been bonkers. You know, and yeah. I'm very worried that an extraordinary talented people have left for maybe ever as they try to struggle to keep their families together. Childcare is a huge issue in the U.S. I'm curious how we can square these two things, get more women on boards of every orientation, every, every hue, but also help rebuild a pathway for working women, because it, it feels like we're at an inflection point and not a good one. I, I feel the same way. And I, you know, I remember when I had my daughter and I, I just have one child and she's 16. So she just got her driver's license. So like my world has just improved dramatically because I'm not <laughs> having to do those weird school pickups and drop offs anymore. Yeah. But I remember a lot of my friends dropping out of the workplace, uh, you know, not after their first child, but after their second or third child. And I feel like COVID is the third child. It's just like that one last thing that prevents it from seeming realistic or reasonable or a decent trade-off to go back to work for a lot of women, especially women in roles like hospitality and travel and education and healthcare, where we've seen, you know, just a tremendous amount of challenge over the last years. But even in technology, it's one of the things that really drives me to like, no matter how hard it is, I'm committed to giving our employees flexibility because I think that is one thing that can help women return to the workplace. I also think we need to think about how we support childcare, emergency childcare, like PagerDuty put together a slew of new benefits over the course of the year to try and support parents and try and support people managing the health of their own parents throughout this pandemic. And I think those kinds of benefits are becoming table stakes and frankly, mission critical in terms of getting people mm. back. I also think that uh, having diverse boards, having diverse leadership teams where you have voice of these people considering these challenges front and center in every big leadership decision you make is super important because one way to ensure that you're going to leave women and underrepresented people behind is to not have any representation in those leadership discussions. Yeah. And so I think representation became more important, not less. 
I'm here with Joe Yukazaglu, who is CEO of Deloitte US and had the good sense to sponsor this podcast. Joe, thanks for being with us and thanks for your support of our second season. Thanks, Alan. Pleasure to be here. Joe, recent CEO transitions point to the stark lack of black leadership at Fortune 500 companies. It'll be down to less than five CEOs and a broader leadership problem at those companies, which affects the pipeline to the top. How are organizations tackling that? Alan, we're seeing an intense focus across our client base, and this has moved well beyond the supportive statements that most companies made last summer. There's a recognition that that was the easy part. The real work is making certain that there's a sustainment of intensity past the headline to actually address the underlying systemic barriers, to get behind the root causes, to make the changes in core business processes around how we're sourcing talent more inclusively, how we're driving equity into assignments, into promotions, to remove the systemic barriers that have historically existed. And I am seeing real change across corporate America. This is not a new problem, obviously, but you think there is a new seriousness in attacking it? Well, I think it goes beyond seriousness to alignment of interests and a recognition amongst business leaders that this is core to the strategy, that those companies that do this well will be more successful in their markets and will be a more attractive destination for talent. Thank you, Joe. This is where this whole hybrid conversation we were just having does get really tricky. Yes, you want to yeah. give people more flexibility so they can stay at home, do their caregiving responsibilities, et cetera. But if you have a system of management which disadvantages the people who aren't in the room, then you're only going to make all the problems of women and underrepresented groups worse. So how, how do you get that right? I think, you know, one of the things I'm thinking about is being one of the last people to come back to the office, not the first. So, you know, often we lead from the front and the CEO turns up in the office and then, you know, everybody who can turn up in the office feels like they have to turn up in the office and you have left people who don't have that option behind. So if I try and be disciplined and ensure that I'm not the reason people are coming in for FaceTime and I, we can demonstrate as a leadership team that it's not FaceTime that's valued, it's input, it's you know your level of engagement in your project, it's leadership, it's working smart, not working certain hours. I think that will help. But I, I think you're right, Alan. I think there are a lot of unanswered questions in how we avoid discrimination, unbiased discrimination against people who can't be in the office, can't connect. And I just had my team together for the first time last week and we made sure everybody was vaccinated. We were in my backyard outside, socially distanced, you know, for two days. And I, I felt that joy that, you know, Daniel mentioned. It was, there were tears. It was so nice to just be back together again. And it's made the next few meetings, you know, much more effective. And I do think there's something to be said, and we've seen this from more just 100% distributed companies like GitLab and Zapier, who have produced lots of great resources on this. If you can get your team together a minimum of four times a year and build those relationships in person, but then do most of your work in hybrid, I think you can create strengthened relationships that help you work more effectively going forward. But I think you have to give people time. You have to make accommodations. You have to be sure that they've got the ability to get the childcare coverage they can. And so we may not be able to do these things until everybody in our organization has access to childcare. The childcare shortage yep. is worrying me. 
I love the idea of designing for joy, though. Mm. It's a, that's such a beautiful new way of thinking about what it means to come together. If it's going to be rare, it needs to be meaningful. It needs to be more human. And I think even orienting that way is a beautiful way just to become more inclusive as a to develop the inclusive leadership muscle because we're seeing each other as humans. Yeah, it's so interesting, though. I mean, in a way, what the office world is going through now is what retail has been going through for the last decade or two. It's it's not the function is not enough. People aren't going to come to your store yeah. to shop. They don't need to anymore. So you got to give them a reason to be there and you got to make it fun. And I think that's what everyone's thinking about the office now. It's like, we, we got to give them a reason. We got to make it fun. Uh, let me ask you, I saw you recently opened an office in Atlanta. That says something right. about how the world has changed as sure well. Why, why Atlanta? Explain that decision. Well, three years ago, I just came to the conclusion, you know, along with the support of my team, that the talent war in San Francisco had, you know, reached ridiculous heights. And... I don't buy into the idea that all the brightest minds are, you know, within 20 square miles of Silicon Valley. So we started looking at new locations in North America where we could not only build out a strong and deep talent bench that was cross-functional, but where we could also create access to underrepresented people who wanted to participate in the tech industry. And I mean, I'm one of those people. Like I have a liberal mm -hmm. arts degree. I came from a little town in the middle of nowhere in Michigan, like I have no business being a deep tech CEO. And yet, you know, here I am. And I wanted that opportunity to be easy and present itself more readily for others. And so we worked with a number of partners to do analysis on, I think it was about 130 cities in North America. But one of the ways we stack ranked those cities was through a diversity index and not just about being able to identify a diverse pipeline, but being able to create reach from the industry to those communities. And Atlanta, I think it came down to Atlanta, Chicago, and Detroit. What we learned about Atlanta is that within kind of a, a 30 minute drive, uh, Atlanta produces more underrepresented undergraduate engineers than anywhere else in North America. And so we just liked that city for you know how many communities we could potentially impact, and it has turned out to be a huge win for us. Alan, you you you, le you leapt in. Uh, no, I did. I was I was sitting back and saying, "Let Ellen has a question." But I I do want to ask you, having this big facility in Atlanta, did you or did you not choose to speak out on the uh, 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 voting law in Georgia? I have spoken out on it in the past, but um, we haven't, you know, I, I don't believe that like boycotting gre the greater Atlanta area or Georgia does anything other than negatively impact those people that I'm trying to create opportunities for. So we're, we are committed to Atlanta. We are going to stay in Atlanta. We're going to continue to try and influence policy and, you know, to the extent that we can voter access, which has been an, an area where we have invested financially, we've invested our platform, we have a number of nonprofit customers that use our products to support voter access. So we're going to continue to support that effort. But I'm committed to the community in Atlanta, and in particular, the individuals that want to work in the tech community. Jennifer, before we let you go, I have to ask you, because as we said from the beginning, there aren't a lot of women in positions like yours yeah. in the tech industry. And you didn't follow a very traditional path into that position. You were a liberal arts major, et cetera. Yeah. So what have you learned along the way that you can pass on to others who are trying to make that uphill climb? Yeah. I mean, I think one, 
Sponsorship is very incredibly important. I always talk to my teams about understanding the difference between mentorship and sponsorship and leveraging both. Uh, you know, a mentor is often, you know, someone that can be a sounding board that's outside uh, your line of influence or your direct reporting line that can be a support and, and a tutor and a teacher. A sponsor is someone that is probably within your realm, your sphere of influence that is connected to power networks that has visibility that you don't have that can make you visible to others. And so I think sponsors are so important for underrepresented people. And, you know, many of my greatest sponsors are men. They were men in positions of power who saw something in me who, when opportunities came up, threw my hat in the ring when I wouldn't have even known the ring was open, right? Mm -hmm. So I think sponsorship is super important. I think, you know, women and underrepresented people need to see networking as part of their job. It is part of my job to be well networked in the industry, to know all the CEOs of our customers, to know, you know, all of the leaders and, and board members who influence everything from M&A to investment, et cetera. Like that is part of my job. I didn't used to see it that way. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think we often think of networking as something we have to do in our spare time, you know, after work and that it's really optional. And it's something that like only a certain subset of people do. Networking is critically important because that's how you build communities. That's how you build a support network. That's how you get the word out when you're looking at what's next for you. And then, you know, the, the third is look for companies that already demonstrate that they value diversity, right? I think sometimes going in and trying to be the only and convincing yourself that you can drive that change all by yourself, like you may be able to, and I did a couple of times and I got to tell you, like I have the battle scars to prove it. And you know, I'm now short and I used to be tall and blonde. I tell people <laughs> uh, and now I'm short and brunette, but if you can find places where they are already sort of breaking the back of some of those challenges, then I think you have a much better chance of being successful. This has been such a fabulous conversation. It's yeah. it, it, it's Always really great to talk to you and you provided some helpful guidance on one of the biggest issues that every business is facing today. So really glad to have you on. Well, it's so nice to see you both. And I, I hope we get to see each other soon at some fortune event somewhere. <laughs> we're going live Me in too. September. We're going live in September. Come join and us. And we're gonna design awesome. for joy. I love it. Flexibility and joy. All right, Alan, not to throw off all of our listeners here, but I want to do something a bit different today. I actually want to give the last word of this episode to a woman named Yvonne Wassenaar. She's the CEO of a company called Puppet. We are an infrastructure automation company, which doesn't mean a lot to a lot of folks. So the way I typically describe it to folks like my mom is, you know, when your cell phone, when it's really annoying, it wants you to update and that means you've got to download something and then restart it, but you were just about to do a phone call. And imagine if you had hundreds of thousands of servers, whether they're in a public cloud, a data center, and you had to manually go through that process, server by server, by endpoint, oh, wow. by firewall. That is soul crushing. And so what Puppet was created to do was to use software to do that work. Really interesting, Ellen. So how does that fit into the Jennifer Tejada story? Well, I loved what Jen was saying there at the end about sponsorship and networking. And Yvonne is a great example of how that's played out in their lives. The two met at a girls in tech conference years ago, stayed in touch, became friends, as all the cool people do. And when the CEO role opened up at Puppet, Jen was on their board. So she connected Puppet with Yvonne. And the rest, as they say, is networking history. But the good vibes don't end there. Here's Yvonne again talking about accepting that job as CEO. I believe the real needle mover 
on diversity overall comes from having people in positions of power care. And oftentimes, particularly earlier on, those people in positions of, of power were white men. But increasingly, we sit in positions of power. And one of the conversations I had with my family was not just, I thought that this was a great company doing important work where I could make a difference. But we talked a lot about this being, in many regards, an obligation that I had as a female leader in tech to make a difference, mm-hmm. to be a role model, to open up doors for others, to create more diversity and inclusion in my circles of influence. And I think that's something I feel blessed to have the opportunity to do, but I, I do take it as a responsibility. Mm-hmm. And as such, you can look at the puppet board and we have strong gender and racial diversity. And that's very intentional. And when you start at that level, I have people who have joined Puppet from different communities who will comment on that's part of why they're there. They see that it's not just words on a website, but that we're actually taking actions so that they have representations at all levels of leadership. So I love that story. It is the ripple effect. It's the virtuous circle. It shows what happens when we see each other and invest in each other and the power of one relationship potentially has to affect so many others' lives. Thank you, Ellen, for bringing Yvonne into this week's Leadership Next. We'll see everyone, or we may not see them. They'll hear us back here again (laughs) next week. Thank you all for listening. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 